bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, September 3rd, 2013. While Congress is still out of session, I'll start this week's podcast with a note about Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus and Republican Ways and Means Chairman Dave Camp's next stop on their tax reform tour. I'll also report on Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu's request that Congress raise the debt ceiling. Then, in our low income housing tax credit segment, I'll discuss changes to HUD's handbook 4350.3 as well as the IRS's, and you might think of it as Grace Robertson's, LIHC newsletter number 52. I'll also discuss a request for comments about the long housing tax credit program's utility allowances and carryover agreements. In this week's New Markets Tax Credit section, I'll alert listeners to a new NMTC Insights report that's from the OCC on the investment potential of New Markets Tax Credits as well as a request for comments on how the CDFI fund collects information on projects. Then, in our historic tax credit discussion, I have a state-level update from Rhode Island about the state's first award of historic tax credits since 2008. And finally, in our renewable energy tax credit discussion, I discuss a new resource guide from the Department of Energy. This guide provides a list of the federal financing programs that energy efficiency improvements and clean energy projects qualify for. So, if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, we turn to tax reform. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus, along with House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp, have announced the next stop on their national tax reform tour. Regular listeners will recall that the two chairmen have been traveling the country, getting input and feedback from the American people on the nation's tax system. On Monday, September 9th, Chairman Baucus and Chairman Camp will visit Memphis, Tennessee, where they're scheduled to have a kitchen table conversation at the Sullivan family farm. Chairman Baucus and Camp will hear about the family's experiences navigating the tax code and managing their farm's finances. Next, Chairman Baucus and Camp will tour the FedEx Express World Hub, During this stop, they'll hold a roundtable discussion with the company and customers from the small business community to discuss how the tax code affects the way businesses operate. And after their meeting next Monday, they'll return to Washington, D.C., and tax reform discussions will continue. Now let's turn to the debt ceiling. Last week, Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu sent a letter to House Speaker John Boehner calling on Congress to act as soon as possible to raise the nation's debt limit. In his letter, Secretary Liu noted that since the government reached its statutory debt limit in mid-May, the Treasury Department had implemented extraordinary measures to avoid defaulting on payments. He then stated that based on the latest estimates, those extraordinary measures are projected to be exhausted in the middle of October. At that point, absent action by Congress, 
the Treasury Department would be left to fund the government with only the cash it has on hand. Liu says this would place the United States in an unacceptable position. As such, he reiterated his request that Congress act as soon as possible to remove the threat of default by raising the debt limit. As many listeners know, this issue has been an ongoing point of contention in Congress, and that is not expected to change. The timing of this deadline is further complicated by the impending end of the fiscal year, which is the deadline for lawmakers to pass federal appropriations bills or another continuing resolution to keep funding government operations. And as you know, that deadline is September 30th. I discussed these deadlines and what they could mean for the tax credit community's legislative priorities in the September issue of the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits. You can read that article online at www.novoco.com journal. In the low-income housing tax credit news, we begin with an update to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's Handbook 4350.3, Occupancy Requirements of Subsidized Multifamily Housing Programs. As many of our listeners know, this guidebook is a key to determining qualification for tenants of low-income housing and taxes and bond properties. And as I mentioned in last week's podcast, HUD has released a change, Change 4, to the handbook. The handbook gives owners, management agents, residents, contract administrators, and HUD staff guidance on the admission and occupancy regulations for project-based subsidized housing units. The changes were effective upon issuance. Here were a few of the changes in the updated version. A number of changes were made to Chapter 5, Determining Income and Calculating Rent, as it pertains to Enterprise Income Verification, or EIV. The web-based EIV application provides owners with employment, wage, unemployment compensation, and Social Security benefit information for tenants participating in HUD's assisted housing programs. The handbook changes say that owners may not use the quarterly wage income reported on the EIV income report in order to calculate a tenant's annual income. It says that the income report must be used as third-party verification of the tenant's employment and that owners should use tenant documents, such as pay stubs, to calculate the tenant's annual income. Furthermore, owners must also use the EIV income report for third-party verification of a tenant's employment and income during recertification. For security reasons, owners can't share the EIV income information with governmental entities that aren't involved in the recertification process. To go over some of the basics of the EIV system, I suggest listeners take a look at Chapter 9 of the Handbook. Chapter 9, I note, was added in this revision of the Handbook. There have also been a number of changes regarding the Violence Against Women Act as it pertains to the Section 8 program. The Handbook now states that property owners' policies must assist victims of domestic violence, dating violence, or stalking from being denied or losing HUD-assisted housing as a consequence of domestic violence. Furthermore, the revisions added language that applicants can't be denied rental assistance or admission solely based on their status as victims of domestic violence. The Violence Against Women Act, Form HUD-91067, must be attached to the applicable model lease for all tenants receiving Section 8 assistance. There were also a number of changes made that amended and added housing rules for housing sex offenders. And finally, the update says that live-in aides and new members of a tenant's household 
must be screened for registration as a sex offender and for other criminal activity. To view the updated handbook and all the changes made in Change 4, go to www.hudresourcecenter.com. Next, we have the latest edition of the Internal Revenue Service's Low-Income Housing Credit Newsletter. This is a periodic newsletter that's released by Grace Robertson with the IRS. Last week, she released LAHC Newsletter number 52. This latest issue covered several topics, including an explanation of rules that the IRS asserts prohibits third-party costs and fees in obtaining construction loans or in issuing tax and bonds from being included in the building's eligible basis under Section 42. This newsletter also has two clarifications on the Section 1602 Loan Compensating Tax Credit Exchange Program. Do you remember that one? It was included in the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, and it provided states grants in exchange for their loan compensating tax credit allocations. First, subawards made under the exchange program are excluded from the gross income of recipients and are exempt from taxation. And second, the basis of a qualified building is not reduced by the amount of the grant. The newsletter also discusses minimum set-aside issues, like how you make the election, how the minimum set-aside defines low income, and the minimum set-aside calculation versus the applicable fraction for determining how much of a building's eligible basis is qualified basis for purposes of calculating tax credits. Another topic discussed was the allowance of deductions for personal exemptions for married full-time students and same-sex couples. Now, at the time the newsletter was written, the IRS had not quite yet issued guidance on how to treat same-sex couples for tax purposes. However, the IRS announced last Thursday that it does recognize same-sex marriages, so same-sex married students can now be considered for personal exemption deductions and the student rule exception. This announcement by the IRS on Thursday nullifies some of the information in this newsletter 52. In case you're wondering, we will be covering how the Supreme Court's Defense of Marriage Act decision affects long-term tax credits in the October issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. I encourage you to subscribe to the journal on our website, that is, if you haven't already, of course. And if you have questions in the meantime, please contact my partner, Jim Kroger, in our San Francisco office. And finally, the IRS has requested comments on a few Treasury regulations. Specifically, they've requested comments on regulations on carryover allocations, as well as utility allowance regulations. The notice invited public comment on a number of matters, including the importance of the information collected and ways to improve the quality, utility, and clarity of the information collected. Now, comments are going to be accepted until October 28th. The Long-Visiting Task Credit Working Group will be submitting comments on both regulations, and I would encourage you to send comments to cpas.novahoo.com that you think should be included in the Long-Visiting Task Credit Working Group's comments. And if you want additional information about the Long-Term Housing Tax Credit Working Group, I encourage you to contact my partner, Stacy Stewart, in our Dover, Ohio office. Now, we'll note that in the request for comments, no changes have been proposed to the existing regulations. And if you want to read the notice, go to www.taxcredithousing.com. In historic tax credit news, I have a state-level update from Rhode Island. As regular listeners know, Rhode Island recently resurrected its state historic tax credit program. Last week, the Rhode Island Division of Taxation held a drawing 
to allocate approximately $34.5 million in historic preservation tax credits. The credits awarded during this drawing were previously allocated but unused. The credits became available to applicants through the Historic Preservation Tax Credit Program that was signed back into law July 3, 2013. The reopen program provides a 20% credit for qualified rehabilitation expenditures incurred on or after July 3, 2013. The Division of Taxation began accepting applications August 1st, and it received requests from 41 applicants on that day. It then received a few more applications on successive days. Applicants requested a total of $54.5 million in credits, or about $20 million more than the state had available. The first 41 applicants were entered into a lottery because they had submitted applications on the same day and the state was awarding the tax credits on a first-come, first-served basis. The state pulled development names at random and tax credits were distributed accordingly until the $34.5 million limit was reached. 32 applicants were awarded tax credit reservations using this process. The remaining August 1 applicants were placed in queue. The applicants who had submitted their applications later were added to the list in the order they were received. Applicants from the queue will receive credits if those awarded tax credits are unable to use them or miss program deadlines. Applicants who receive funding will have 90 days from the date of the letter from the Rhode Island Historical Preservation Heritage Commission to get Part 1 and 2 of the Commission's application approved. Furthermore, approved applicants have 30 days after the certification of Part 2 to pay the processing fee and sign the tax credit contract with the Division of Taxation. The state did not release the names of those projects awarded tax credits because taxpayer information is confidential. State Tax Administrator David Sullivan said in a Providence Journal article that the identity of these developments can be released once applicants sign a contract with the Division of Taxation, and that usually takes 90 to 120 days. If you want more information about Rhode Island's historic tax credit program, I encourage you to visit the Historic Tax Credit Resource Center at www.historictaxcredits.com. You can access information about Rhode Island's program, as well as information about more than 30 other states' historic tax credit programs. And if you have questions about historic tax credits, I encourage you to contact Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. In new market tax credit news, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or the OCC, has released an update to its 2007 NMTC Insights report. The report is titled, New Markets Tax Credit, unlocking investment potential. It highlights the opportunities and risks for banks and federal savings associations in new market tax credit investments. According to the report, some of the main benefits of the program for banks includes serving customer needs by enabling commercial transactions in low-income communities, meeting community reinvestment act requirements, and receiving competitive returns on equity investments. The report discusses transaction structures, regulatory guidance, that's since the previous NMTC insights, leveraged loans, case studies of successful new market sector projects, also the Public Welfare Investment Authority. This is the rule under which national banks and federal savings associations may make new market tax credit equity investments, and how new market tax credit activities by banks and federal savings associations are evaluated for Community Reinvestment Act purposes. The report also names several factors that have limited the growth of the New Market Tax Credit Program. These include uncertainty of the program's existence in the future, 
the limited amount of credits available for allocation, and the cost and complexity of transactions. Now, I think the report can be an effective tool to promote greater bank involvement in the new market tax credit program. I also think that the trend has been towards lower costs and less complexity. Now, many local and regional banks may be unfamiliar with the program and its Community Reinvestment Act benefits, so I encourage you to share this report with your local lenders. You can find a copy of the report at www.newmarketscredits.com. And if you have any questions about the interaction of bank investments and the New Market Tax Credit, I encourage you to contact Owen Gray in our San Francisco office. Now let's turn to news from the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund. The CDFI Fund last week issued an invitation for public comment on the annual Community Investment Impact System, or CIS, report. This report, as you likely know, is required for participants in the CDFI program, Native American CDFI Assistance Program, and the New Market Tax Credit Program. The report includes quantitative data on CDFIs and community development entities. CIS is used to assess awardees' activities, as detailed in the application process, awardees' approved use of assistance, awardees' financial condition, the socioeconomic characteristics of awardees' borrowers' investees, loan and investment terms, repayment status, and community development outcomes, as well as overall compliance. Comments are invited on all aspects of the information collection, but the CDFI fund said that commentators may wish to focus on issues like reporting costs, ways to enhance the quality, utility, and clarity of the information collected, and ways to streamline the information collection. Now, the New Market Tax Working Group will be submitting comments. Comments are due October 28th, and I'd encourage you to submit comments as well. And if there are particular areas that you think need particular attention, please send an email to Brad Elphick. He's a partner of mine in our Atlanta, Georgia office, and he heads up the New Market Tax Credit Working Group. In renewable energy tax credit news, last week, the Energy Department announced the release of a new comprehensive guide. It's entitled, A Guide to Federal Finance Facilities Available for Energy Efficiency Upgrades and Clean Energy Deployment. This resource guide lists the various federal financing programs for which energy efficiency and clean energy qualify. The Energy Department says this is meant to make it easier for state, local, and tribal leaders, along with their partners in the private sector, find capital for energy efficiency and clean energy projects. For every facility listed, the guide identifies a single point of contact who can answer questions and provide additional support. Now, this guide does not include various tax credits and state-specific incentives for investment in building upgrades and renewable energy projects. For those resources, the U.S. Department of Energy sponsors an online guide, and it's entitled The Database for State Incentives for Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency. Cleverly, that's an acronym for DESIRE, D-S-I-R-E. DESIRE covers multiple agencies and specific programs in all 50 states. It's interesting to note that while the new guide doesn't include the production tax credit or investment tax credit for renewable energy, it does include the new markets tax credit. As the guide notes, new markets tax credits can be used for a wide range of projects, including projects that have environmentally sustainable outcomes in low-income communities. For example, the guide notes that new market tax credits may be awarded for the construction or retrofit of buildings that meet LEED certification standards. 
They can also directly support the production or distribution of renewable energy resources such as biomass, hydrogeothermal, solar, wind, and others. A copy of the new resource guide can be found online at www.doe.gov. And to learn more about using New Markets Tax Credit to finance renewable energy development, you can contact my partner, Tony Grapponi, in our Boston office, or my partner, John Shreddy, in our Dover, Ohio office. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.